We are in the middle of a series that we're calling Seven Elephants. And when we first rolled out Seven Elephants, people were wondering, what in the world is that talking about? We're saying it's a family series. What do elephants have to do with family series? And uh, what we're doing is talking about the seven elephants in the room. These are seven discussions that every family should have, but they don't have because they're too awkward. But they're big. They're, they're big, imposing uh, presence in the family, and we need to talk about these things. And we're going to do it in a fun, kind of lighthearted way, but in a way that will absolutely transform your family. The, the, the level of, of impact that just last week had uh, in terms of views and comments and testimonies from just last week, the first of the seven elephants, has been powerful and profound. So God, I'm sure, is going to do a big work through this family series. Today, we're going to talk about marriage, an elephant that has to do with marriage. And this is going to apply whether you're married or single, single again, if you will be married, if maybe God has called you to singleness, all of this applies to every relationship, but particularly we're going to talk about marriage today. Here's how we're going to start. Ready? Marriage, in my opinion, is a bait and switch. (laughs) Marriage is a bait and switch. Here's what I mean. Some of you are awkwardly laughing, so you know what I'm talking about. When we date... It's a, it's a game. It's, a, it's fake. It's a fraud. There ought, to be, there ought to be lawsuits about dating because none of it is real, right? You're, you're putting on your best. You're dressing your best. You're smelling your best. You're on your best behavior, right? Uh, and, and, and the person you're dating is doing the exact same thing. You minimize your own weaknesses so you don't show up to a date all thrash talking about how terrible you are. You come, you come up to a date and you're all put together and you talk about the good things in your life and the good things in your experience. And then you believe the best of the person you're dating. Why? Because what we talked about last week is this love conquest. You want to get to the finish line in this relationship. We are wired to, I hate to be so crude about this, but we're, we're wired to mate. And the human species typically mates through covenantal marriages, right? Monogamous kind of covenantal marriages. That's how we're wired, Right. And so, and so in order to get to that point, we've got to play a little game. It's sort of the human equivalent of a peacock's feathers, right? So that we do that dating. We're putting on our best and most beautiful. But it's not real. That's not the real you. And then we have a wedding. And the wedding isn't real. The wedding is a, is a fantasy. Now, listen, we're heading into our first marriage, and we're excited about it. We are absolutely excited about it. But we know what it is. It's a fun event that is going to get a couple off to their best, but we know that has nothing to do with a real marriage, right? Um, Let's uh, get a few words of wisdom from Jim Gaffigan about this. Now, I understand weddings are an important event where we spend a lot of money so that the bride can pretend to be a princess and marry her prince and live happily ever after because magic exists. <laughs> and we're a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> Weddings are kind of weird. I mean, what's the logic? It's like, well, we love each other. Why don't we pretend we have a kingdom? <laughs> we'll invite your parents' friends and my parents' friends and we'll have a banquet. <laughs> and the two kingdoms shall come together as one. <laughs> and we can start our married life with a total fantasy before we go on a completely unjustified vacation. (laughs) It's strange, right? I mean, weddings started off as these crude medieval ceremonies where women, daughters, were exchanged as property. Yet over the course of centuries, they got worse. (laughs) That's why people cry at weddings. I can't believe we're still wasting money on this. Whenever I see someone crying at a wedding, I would say, don't worry, it probably won't work out. 
is nice to be invited to a wedding, but you always look at that invitation like, ah, this is gonna cost me. <laughs> oh good, it's out of town. Wouldn't want to use those vacation days for vacationing. <laughs> and you can tell how much a wedding's gonna cost you by the type of invitation you receive. You're like, oh no, this one's made of baby skin. <laughs> And that font and the language on there. The Honorable Kingslayer cordially invites you to the marriage of his 40-year-old daughter to a live-in boyfriend of 12 years. Ring that wallet. Because you have to get the newlyweds a gift because they've done nothing. So you go to the registry, the registry, which is a nice way of saying, you don't have to get us anything, but when you do, make sure it's one of these things. <laughs> and most weddings, the guests receive a gift, right? Sometimes it's like a bag of almonds covered in candy. Thanks, I guess we're even. <laughs> Since you got me a bag of nuts. <laughs> it's not always like nuts. Sometimes the gift is like a knick-knack or a Happy Meal toy kind of thing. The last wedding we are at, everyone at the wedding got a wine stopper filled with sand because the theme of the wedding was waste. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is Jim Gaffigan, ladies and gentlemen. Funny guy. But it just goes to show you that this whole idea of, of the dating and the wedding really doesn't have a lot to do with the actual lifelong marriage. It's just kind of a way to get us there so that the human species can propagate on and on. And if you look really at the, at the details of marriage and what we're asking of marriage couples, we might come to the conclusion that marriage is in fact designed to fail. <laughs> marriage seems designed to fail. If you just, uh, let's, let's look objectively at what we're asking couples to do. We are asking two strangers to bind themselves in a covenant till death. Now, you're, well, strangers, what do you mean? They were dating. Well, you don't know each other just by dating, right? Um, you put on your best in order to get to the finish line. You're at the finish line, and then the real person starts coming out a little more as you go. And this is a covenant till death. I mean, it's a big, ominous, somewhat scary thing we're asking people to do, right? If you look at Genesis 2.22, you see sort of this metaphor of marriage and family, and it says this, the Lord brought her to the man. And in, in ancient times, certainly there was just two literal strangers being brought together from two families that had prearranged marriages. Now there is this dating, there is courtship, people are getting married a little bit later, so you do have a chance to get to know each other a little more, but still marriage is about God bringing two people together. It's not this wonderful union of soulmates. That's kind of this, this um, uh, betrayal of an expectation. It betrays really the concept of marriage to think, I found my soulmate, right? It's really deeper. It's really about God bringing two people together in a covenant of marriage, a covenant of selfless, sacrificial love. But that is not truly what we think we're getting into. But the reality is you have two different people that don't know each other very well covenanting together to, to be bound as one, relationally, legally, spiritually, until they're dead. I mean, that is quite a job description. And these are people that are different, two different backgrounds, different family experiences, different values, different opinions, maybe different politics, different expectations, a different vision for life and for future and for career and for family, different people, mostly strangers, bound together in a lifelong covenant. Now, for those of you who are about to get married, I don't want that to scare you because marriage is the best thing ever. But sometimes, sometimes, we can applaud that. One person's into that. Let's join in that one person. 
But, but marriage is more difficult than we initially imagined it might be because we're so different. And, and not only are we different people, but men and women are different. Most marriages around here are men and women, and, and, and men and women are wired differently. Now, I'm not going to get in, in trouble here. I'm not going to get in trouble here by detailing how men are different than women. But what I am going to say is there are differences between human beings. Some of those, generally speaking, happen to be true of most men and most women. So instead of pegging anybody, let me just read how different two people might be uh, by their wiring. One might be more goal-oriented, and the other might be more relational. I'll let you decide which is male and female in your house. One may be more emotional, and the other may be more analytical. One may be more into problem-solving, and the other more into the process. One may express intimacy relationally. The other would enjoy expressing their intimacy physically. One might be driven by ego, the other might be driven by affection. One might be prone to tears, the other might be prone to anger. One might be a risk taker, and the other might be more uh, desiring security. One might be a verbal processor, the other might rather have short bursts of communication. I'll let you decide what's uh, the men and women tendency in your own home, right? But there are some general realities that make a marriage between a man and a woman more difficult. Communication styles may be way off between men and women. Values may be way off between men and women, usually around families. And sexual rhythms can be way off between men and women. All of these things kind of weigh down on a marriage. And you could almost conclude that a marriage seems designed to fail. There were two different people, men and women are different, and then you add kids to the mix. Add kids to the mix, boom. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) And kids are um, wonderful. Gifts from God for sure, but always traumatic on a marriage. It's hard enough just merging two people together. Now you add a kid or two at a time, and and now you've got real issues. It does create trauma. Best gifts in the world, but it does create trauma. In Genesis 1.21, God blessed them and says, be fruitful and multiply. And so certainly God has designed, uh, you know, children to be raised in the context of covenantal love because kids thrive when they're in a context of covenantal love but they tend to be very difficult on a marriage. It takes adjustment. Not only do you have the challenge of two people, the differences between men and women, most marriages, you know, you put kids in the mix. Then you have this other reality of a world that's in chaos and personal failures all adding to the mix. We live in a broken world. This world is full of chaos. And that brokenness also means that we don't always do the right things. We are broken as well. So you have a world in chaos and personal failures all bearing down on a marriage. Genesis 1-2, you see this, this, this idea that God created the heavens and the earth in chaos. God created the earth in chaos, formless and void. Then God begins to bring order to the chaos and then tells men, now this is men and women, married couple, you fill the earth and subdue it. God says, I've ordered this world to a point. Now I'm delegating my authority to you. You subdue this world. You order this world. So God looks at marriages and says, through family, through marriage and family, you're going to bring my peace and order to this chaotic world. Sometimes it works that way and sometimes it doesn't. This world is chaotic. We sometimes are chaotic people. And in that chaos, we make mistakes and a marriage has consequences when those mistakes are made. In Genesis chapter 3, we see a, a very deep mistake that is made. Uh, and again, Genesis 1 through 3 is a metaphor of humanity and family and, and God. And, and the characters in this are Adam and Eve. And God says, do whatever. You've got freedom. Just don't eat that. And what do they do? Eat that. And then what happens? They're busted. 
And, and here's how this goes down, right? It, it goes down like this. The man said uh, to God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Typical guy, right? It's, it's the wife. She did it. He even blames God. He throws God under the bus. I wouldn't recommend that. I mean, but it's not my fault. Yeah, I did something wrong, but it, 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 she did something wrong first. It's the whole brokenness of the world results in brokenness at home. And then God looks at the woman. What do you have to say for yourself, right? What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I hear this all the time. Uh, oh yeah, I made a mistake, but the devil was after me. Oh really, you are that important. The devil was after you. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure the devil woke up this morning and thought, oh, of all the people on the earth, you're the ones I'm gonna go. I mean, we just, we just wanna blame and blame and blame because we're broken people. And you take that defensiveness into a marriage that, and those personal failures into a marriage and that marriage gets heavier and heavier and heavier. Blaming each other, striving for position, striving to get our way, striving for control, um, striving to somehow be made happy by this marriage. All this striving can weigh down a marriage. And that could end up in most marriages coming to the conclusion, and this is the elephant of the day, the elephant in the room today is coming to the conclusion that, you know what? This marriage isn't what I imagined it would be. I am convinced every marriage at some point comes to this conclusion. You know, I had, I had dreams for what this marriage was going to be, and we're not living the dream right now. For whatever reason, we're not living the dream because we're, we're kind of strangers trying to make it work. There's differences between men and women. There's kids in the mix that we can't really seem to navigate. The world is in chaos. I've made some personal mistakes, and, and this marriage has resulted in something I never imagined it would be. Now, for, for some of you, you might be thinking, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've thought that a little bit here and there. For some of you, this is the culture of your marriage. It's a disillusionment. This is not what I imagined it would be. And that's tough to come to that conclusion. It's an elephant in the room. And, and you don't want to have that conversation. And I understand it. I mean, imagine over lunch today, you know, you're at a restaurant and you say to your husband, you know what? This isn't quite the marriage I imagined. Let's talk about this for a while. <laughs> and so sometimes that feeling is a feeling that is felt in isolation and you're feeling it and your spouse is probably feeling it and then you spend your days kind of managing the frustration of that. Most marriages, at least for a season, sink into that. And, and, and some marriages are defined by that. And we're saying today, we're gonna to talk about that elephant in the room and whether you have yet to be married, single, single again, or married, or, or have been married for many, many decades, this is gonna be a very important principle for us all to kind of work out in our lives that it's okay to think this marriage isn't what I imagined and now let's deal with that. Let's deal with that because marriage is hard. So we've gotta deal with the hard questions. We've gotta deal with the elephants in the room. In fact, the marriage is so hard, the Apostle Paul said this to a church that was struggling with family life. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> the actual holy word of God. The Apostle Paul is saying, you know what, marriage is hard. Uh, you might not want to do it. It's in the Bible. Now, the whole Bible is filled with marriage and family and vision of marriage and family. And so most scholars say this was a temporary situation as Rome is persecuting the church. Paul is saying, hey, listen, this is a tough time to get married when Rome is pulling Christian men out of their homes, throwing them to the lions or crucifying them, not a good time to throw a wedding, right? So he might be saying that, but the, the underlying point is marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult. If you choose the path of marriage, you're choosing the path of trouble. Now, it is wonderful. Marriage and family is wonderful. Marriage, family, and kids is wonderful, but it does seem to have 
its challenges. And for most people, it's this disillusionment, this marriage is not what I expected. Now, this was true in our own marriage. Jenny and I had a wonderful time dating. We had a wonderful wedding. We even had a, a wonderful, I don't know, what, five years, right? Wonderful five years. As, as, that was our newlywed season. It's five years. It was awesome, right? When we had our first child, and she's also in this room, um, we weren't prepared for it. I mean, when she was born, changed my life. I cried that day for the first time in my memory. Changed my life. But our marriage was not prepared for a child. Our marriage was not prepared for a child. My wife went into mom mode, and I felt I was put in the back seat and totally forgotten, and I whined, and I sniveled like an immature little brat, and so I got involved in other things that were going to, you know, feed my ego, and so we just kind of went like this over a period of years. Then twins dropped in the, the world, and it was just, we were, we were done. We did not know how to navigate that. We were unprepared, and so we came to the conclusion that this marriage is not what we imagined. This marriage is not what we got to experience. It was a great time, but we don't have that marriage anymore. That marriage is gone. And, and our marriage was dying by a thousand paper cuts. That's how I describe it. Dying by a thousand paper cuts. Just at each other's throats and, and I wasn't there enough and I'd show up late to everything and I just felt like I was kind of being disrespected and sidelined and, and that's just the way it was. It was a, 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 a truly terrible season in our marriage. And fortunately, we didn't get far enough down that road to, to go into real, you know, crisis that was inescapable. Um, I believe that it's this message today that saved our marriage. And perhaps it can save yours as well. But marriage is hard. I don't know if you follow the royal um, family. If you do, I have no respect for you. But <laughs> I, I can't get them off of my newsfeed. It doesn't matter how much feedback, I can't get them off my newsfeed. But I thought this was kind of funny. <laughs> the couple on the right just loving this whole new thing. The couple on the left, whoever they are, I don't know their names. I think Markle is one of them. But the couple on the left, you know, they've been this, at this a little bit, you know, long. And I think this marriage isn't quite what they thought it would be. What did I imagine my marriage would be? It's pretty simple. I imagined that my wife would thank me her entire life for just being me. When we were dating, I mean, she seemed to, to notice me and appreciate me, and I just thought that appreciation would last forever, that she would be totally impressed with me our, our entire life. I thought that she would notice everything I did. She was noticing a lot of what I did when we were dating, and she was, wow, hey, you're doing all this and this and this, and I thought, well, that would just continue. Uh, I actually thought that she would, of course, recognize the profound wisdom of every single one of my opinions for the rest of our life. This is what I expected. We experienced some of that. And I expected that would continue. I also expected that there would be a lot, a lot of super rad sex. That's just what I, what I imagined, right? Why wouldn't I? It's kind of like this. I, I sort of imagined that, um, you know, I would be that kind of the Joe Jonas of the Joe Jonas and Sansa Stark, whatever her real name is. This was a post on, on their social media account. Sansa Stark, whatever her name is, just totally gushing over her rock star Joe Jonas, right? And wouldn't every guy just want that? You know, I've got my number one fan and I'm her rock star and she's just gushing over me. This is kind of what I would like, right, babe? <laughs> what did my wife imagine? My wife imagined that I would um, change the oil by myself and change the brakes on the cars by myself, just like her dad did. And I, I remember the, <laughs> the, the look in her eyes when I said to her, hey, babe, uh, we need some brakes. I'm going to the auto repair shop. Apparently, it's a terrible thing 
to go to an auto repair shop when your car needs repair. In her world, in her household, dad just put the thing on blocks and dad fixed it. But, and she expected that I would do that. So the look of disapproval when I took a car to a car shop to be repaired was, was pretty clear. Um, my wife uh, assumed that I would want to live in the country just like her dad provided for their family. Are you seeing a pattern here? Uh, my wife thought and assumed and hoped that we would live in one house raising our kids for our whole family life, just like her dad provided for them. And, and so I did not quite measure up. And of course, uh, my wife wanted a lot of super rad conversation. <laughs> That's what she expected. And so uh, maybe hers was more like this. This is again, Joe Jonas and Sansa Stark, whatever her real name is. This is uh, on their Instagram account in Paris. They were in Paris, this romantic dinner in Paris and super romantic. This is what my wife thought life would be like. And so, you know, we get down the road a little bit. We experience some really good things, but then life kind of hits, and, and you come to that conclusion, this is not what I imagined it to be. We could put it like this. Um, this is kind of real. My son just asked what it's like to be married, so I deleted all the music off his iPod except one song. <laughs> First of all, I don't know who has an iPod anymore, but that's besides the point. So marriage sometimes isn't what we imagine it would be. We just have to own that. That's part of just the normal rhythm of life. But what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Two things. Pretty simple stuff, but profound stuff. First, recognize that the marriage we imagined may not be the best kind of marriage. This is so important. Recognize that the marriage we imagined may not be the best kind of marriage. Why? Because the marriage I imagined was the marriage that would make me happy. You see the problem with that? The marriage I imagined, you know, Sansa Stark, you know, doting over her husband's rock star, that marriage would have made me happy, and that's the problem. It's a thin definition of marriage. It's a marriage about me. And same thing with my wife's expectations of marriage. So maybe what we imagine marriage would be is, in fact, not the best kind of marriage. What's the best kind of marriage? Genesis 2.24. This is the best kind of marriage. You ready? A man and wife join, and the two are united into one, naked and unashamed. Some of you guys that dozed off like naked, who's naked? <laughs> it's, it's not about nakedness. It's about union, union, union in every way. Really, marriage is about oneness. And it is difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. It's difficult by design. I don't know, 10 years ago, we did a whole series called Imperfect by Design. I think God intentionally wired us different, wired men and women different, had the whole circumstance of marriage difficult because he wants us to go through the experience of love. And love can only be experienced through difficulty. Love can only be experienced through compromise. Love can only be experienced through argument. Love can only be experienced when we give ourselves for the benefit of the other. Love can only be experienced when it's difficult. And so when couples are shocked that, wow, this is difficult, it's like, well, that's necessary in order for you to express love. Love cannot be expressed when things are easy. It's not possible. So it's about attaining oneness through the difficulty of marriage, attaining oneness through the difficulty of marriage. If I can put it this way, marriage is two becoming one relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and sexually. And this takes time. This takes some effort. This takes a lifetime together, striving to attain this oneness. And so, so we've got to recalibrate our expectations of marriage. Our expectations cannot be, this marriage is going to make me happy the way I want to be made happy. 
We're destined for failure if that's the case. Or my husband or my wife exists to make me happy. Or this marriage with him or her will make me happy. That is destined to fail. Marriage is, in fact, this. It's a wonderful, lifelong adventure. We have to to rethink marriage. It's not about my personal happiness. It's not about other people making me happy. Marriage is a wonderful, lifelong adventure toward oneness, not a finish line of personal happiness. We deal with this all the time in pastoral counseling and at our Safe Harbor Counseling Center where people you know, come in, their, their marriage is in, in some crisis, and it could be the way our marriage was, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, or it could be this, this, this radical crisis in a marriage, but more often than not, people come and say, you know what, I'm not happy. He didn't make me happy. She didn't make me happy. He or she are not meeting my expectations. I'm doing more than they are. It's just, it's just this contest about who's gonna make who happy. We have to put that to death. We have to put that to death. It's not about that. Marriage is truly about oneness. Oneness in every way, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And then when we realize this kind of thin, self-centered imagination of what marriage could be for my happiness, once we put that to death, we have to then reimagine something different. We have to reimagine a more meaningful marriage of oneness. What does that look like? What does oneness look like? How can I attain oneness despite our differences, despite the men and women differences, despite kids that may come into, the, into play here, despite the world's chaos and the chaos of personal failures? How can we, through all that, attain oneness? We've got to have a vision of what that might look like. And I'm utterly convinced that oneness happens only one way. There's only one way a marriage can experience true oneness, and it is this. Oneness is living for the pleasure of our spouse. That's it. Oneness is living for the pleasure of our spouse. And I know the first reaction is always the same. Oh, I don't like that. If I live for their pleasure, what does that mean? Nobody's gonna look out for my pleasure. We're keeping score, this is human nature. To get past that is very difficult. And you'll see this as a thread throughout this whole series and throughout really the scripture. It's, it, it's about selfless, sacrificial love, living for the pleasure of the other. Now, I know some of you are in a marriage situation where that's unthinkable. Some of you, your marriages are in such crisis you can't even get there. I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. And I might even agree with you. And if your marriage is at that level of crisis, I just want to encourage you. I want to urge you. If I could demand it, reach out and get some help. We have amazing pastoral counselors around here who love walking marriages through crisis. We have Safe Harbor Counseling Center, many licensed Christian therapists who will help you heal through this. But but just at least put in the back of your mind that the goal is oneness, and the only way to get to oneness is to live for the pleasure of your spouse. Live for the pleasure of your spouse. Now, I also want to be very clear about this as well. I have never and will never ask someone to endure abusive behavior. I'm not talking about enduring abusive behavior, right? Give pleasure to the one who is abusing you. I would never say that. I would also never say that the biblical expectation is for you as a man or a woman to be weak and meek and subservient, you know, and just, and just live, you know, for the, 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 you know, the, the dutiful, you know, deeds of, of a married person, um, and, and not, not experience any joy in that. I would never ask that of you. In fact, I want to be clear about Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Get this. It's beautiful. Don't look out only for your own interests. What does that mean? Look out for your interests. But don't just look out for your interest. Take an interest in others also. If you can practice this in marriage where I, I'm a st- strong person. I'm not asking anybody to be weak. The Bible never asks anybody to be weak and meek and mild and subservient. Never. 
Look out for your own interest, but also look out for the interest of your spouse. I love how it also says in the New Testament, uh, consider others more important than yourself. What does that mean? You're important. You're important. But consider, deem others more important than yourself. And if we can live these principles in marriage, we are going to be thriving. We really are, I promise you. Even if your marriage is, is in trouble right now, if we walk that journey of reimagining what marriage could be, that we're looking out for the pleasure of the other and walk a journey of forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and then learning the habits of living for the pleasure of the others, most any marriage can be healed. But it's a whole new way of looking at things. In my strength, live for the pleasure of the other. I am important, but I'm gonna consider the other more important. I have interests that I you know, wanna move forward, but I'm also gonna look out for the interests of others. This is the biblical vision of oneness. And I told you last week, in our own family, as, as we were dying a death from a thousand paper cuts, it was my wife who went to a, a conference, and that conference had a breakout group, and there was a panel of women who, who told the ladies in the audience, you know, we want you to do two things. We encourage you to do two things. Uh, stop sweating the small stuff and invest in your sexuality, your sexual relationship with your husband. Now, if your marriage is in real trouble, that's the last thing you want to hear is, ew, that's, that, we're not ready. And I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Sometimes in a marriage, there's such trauma that the idea of investing in your sexual relationship is just not on the table. And again, I'm sympathetic and I understand pastoral counseling and safe harbor is for you, right? But for marriages that are just struggling as our marriage was, my wife took that in and she stopped sweating the small stuff and she invested in our sexual relationship and as I mentioned last week, I took notice of that. I was ashamed that I wasn't the one to take the lead, but I noticed that she was taking the lead. And then we began a wonderful relationship of healing. She started it. <laughs> she started the good stuff going forward. And, and, and I initially was following her lead. And now I think we're partners in living for the pleasure of, of, other, of the other. And my wife, I know, has things in her mind and what, she, what it means for her to live for my pleasure. But I know it's on my radar. I absolutely know it's on my radar. My job is to live for her pleasure. So what I want to do is I want to let her know every single day how beautiful she is. She is the most beautiful person on earth. That's my job every day to try to convince her of that, even though there's no lady on earth who actually believes they're beautiful because of all the standards and social media nonsense that's out there. But it's my job to counteract every bit of, of, of the voice that would say that she's not beautiful in her own, in her own heart and to reverse that so she knows that she's the most beautiful woman on earth, that she knows that I'm thinking about her, so sending her text through the day, you know, that she knows I'm looking out for what she wants in life, that she's, she's got a partner here, that I notice what she does and thank her for what she does every single day uh, to raise the kids and keep the house and work to help provide for the family, to, know, to appreciate her every single day. That's my job. Part of that is, is I, I give her my Mondays. Her love language is, is acts of service, and so her sweet spot is when she and I are working together on a project, usually around the house. She loves that. I had to learn to, to, to understand that and to say, okay, my Mondays belong to her. I'm her slave on Mondays. I mean, I'm her indentured servant. What do we do? She'll tell me this afternoon what we're doing tomorrow, right? But it's a, it's a good rhythm. It's a good rhythm that we have, trying to live for the other's pleasure. It took us a decade, truly a decade, to correct where we had gone wrong. And we're no longer living in this weight of death by a thousand paper cuts. We have made the turn. We've got a healthy marriage. We still have a ways to go to achieve that perfect oneness. We're not there yet, but we're striving to get there. After, uh, after really this period where marriage was not what we imagined it to be, we had to reimagine a marriage that was even better. And we're working it. We're working it. 
To put it this way, I have the inexpressible privilege to love my wife with the love of Christ. I'm not there yet, but that's my privilege. And, and if I can walk that journey to love her with the love of Christ selflessly, sacrificially, I mean, Jesus died to show the depth of the love of God. Now, fortunately, marriage isn't like crucifixion. Some of you might argue that point. Marriage is not like crucifixion. But Jesus showed the full measure of love as he gave his life for us. And we just take a piece of that love and we say, God, it's my pleasure to give myself for the pleasure of my wife. And if we can say that towards our wives, men, and ladies, if you can say that towards your husband, we can, we can tackle this elephant in the room and we can make it much smaller. It doesn't have to be this weight that is crushing your home. It could be this whole new vision of what marriage can be, loving one another with the love of Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are so grateful for your love for us, and we celebrate that every week in every message and every song. You love us unconditionally, selflessly, and sacrificially, and you prove that through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And as Ephesians 5 says, marriage is to be a reflection of Christ-like love. And so we want to embrace that vision, and we confess that every single one of us, whether we have yet to be married or are married, we have all been sucked into this idea that marriage is about our own personal happiness. And as a result, there always is this disillusionment where marriage is not what I imagined. And it's okay to, to think through that. It's okay to put that to, to, to rest and to have a whole new vision of marriage emerge. A vision of marriage where we live for the pleasure of the other. We don't keep score of, of how committed we are. We don't keep score of, of who is more appreciative or who does what. We just simply take our pleasure in living for the pleasure of our spouse. That is an art and a skill that takes decades to learn. It's a lifelong adventure. Give us energy. Give us power for that adventure. Um, give us this, this vision that will help us to heal, a, a vision of a marriage that is, that is a, of oneness. Give us that vision that helps us to move beyond where we're stuck, to move beyond disillusionment, to move beyond the scars that we've inflicted on each other uh, as we have disconnected. Uh, and I pray that every marriage here at Rancho and every marriage to come would be healthy and truly happy at the deepest level as we live for the pleasure of the other. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said, amen.